Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, the podcast about speculative fiction and science and futurism that always packs a lot of trail mix when we go on our epic quests through the gray lands. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm the author of a whole bunch of recent books, including a young adult space fantasy trilogy that ends with Promises Stronger Than Darkness, which comes out in April. And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I currently have a book out now about archaeology called Four Lost Cities. And I have a forthcoming novel it's coming in January that's called The Terraformers. It's so awesome. Okay, so today we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings and the whole genre of epic fantasy, which it arguably spawned. There's been some controversy lately among people who think that elves and other fantasy peoples should only look like white Europeans. So we thought it would be a good moment to kind of talk about what is epic fantasy? How did it come out of Lord of the Rings? And who owns epic fantasy storytelling? And later in the show, we'll be talking to Tolkien's scholar, Helen Young, about how we should view Tolkien's work. And by the way, you know, just a heads up, there's going to be some discussion of sexual assault and sexual violence in this episode. So, you know, if you want to avoid those topics, you might want to stop listening now. Also, on our audio extra next week, we'll be talking about our hopes for Doctor Who now that everything is changing once again. So please don't miss that. And by the way, did you know that this podcast is entirely independent and it's funded by you, our listeners, via Patreon? You know, that's right. It's amazing. If you become a patron, you are helping to make this podcast happen. You are keeping us funded and supplied and you're giving us oats for our horses and you're giving us like fresh armor and swords and everything. And with every single episode, you get audio extras or we're starting to call them mini episodes because they're they're basically like extra episodes of the podcast every other week. It's like a mini candy bar, which is like when you think about it, almost even better than a full candy bar. Yeah, I love some of the mini episodes we've been doing, I think are some of our best stuff lately. And you get access to our Discord channel where we hang out all the time. And it's like basically where I'm spending all my time now that I'm kind of not on Twitter anymore. Think about it. All of that could be yours for just a few bucks a month. And everything you give us goes right back into making our opinions even more correct. You can find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. Okay, let's get epic! Lord of the Rings is technically an epic fantasy, but what actually does epic fantasy mean? Is there some kind of hard and fast definition or, or even like a mushy definition? There is definitely not a hard and fast definition of epic <laughs> fantasy. There is a slow and kind of, yeah, mushy definition. Slimy, bubbling. It's one of those, there's, there's a kind of, there's, there's an inchoate sense of epic fantasy. It's mm -hmm. one of those terms that people throw around all the time and nobody pretty much can agree on what it actually signifies. And, you know, I've come across things where people are basically like, well, you know it when you see it. But here's one answer that comes from Robin Hobb speaking on a panel at, a, at Emerald City Comic Con in 2015. Epic fantasy 
in a sense, is uh, a story of something that is world-changing, but the author determines the size of that world. And, you know, another good definition in the Encyclopedia of Fantasy, editor John Clute says, quote, any fantasy tale written to a large scale which deals with the founding or definitive and lasting defense of a land may fairly be called epic fantasy. So it's sort of the fate of nations and so on and so forth. But, Mm -hmm. you know, right after that, Clute says that, well, a bunch of stuff that's really sword and sorcery or heroic fantasy, where it's just like a dude having adventures and the fate of nations isn't really involved, that stuff often gets miscategorized as epic fantasy. So it's kind of like nobody really knows what what is epic fantasy. There's also a great N.K. Jemisin essay about what we mean when we say epic fantasy, which we'll link to in the show notes. So where does Lord of the Rings come into this? Is this like the first epic fantasy or something? It's kind of the first major epic fantasy, according to some people, but it's also kind of not. And Mm. like, there's a great kind of like, rundown of the history of epic fantasy by friend of the show Adam Adam Whitehead which we'll also link to in the show notes and he says Tolkien did not create the genre of epic fantasy but he did come to define it for most people and most people when they think of epic fantasy they think of Tolkien as like the great kind of master the originator and mm-hmm. you know Lord of the Rings became synonymous with epic fantasy and a lot of the big works of epic fantasy that we think of were explicitly imitating Tolkien or drawing from Tolkien and many of them follow its format very closely. There's a plucky hero, there's an epic quest, the fate of nations are at stake and there's some kind of shadowy villain who is up to no good who often is like explicitly capital E evil. And you know, People talk about it basically being like there was Lord of the Rings. It became really popular in the late 60s, early 70s. And then finally, there's this moment in 1977 where the genre really takes off, where Lester Del Rey founds Del Rey Books, and he publishes two books that became huge hits that kind of build on the legacy of Tolkien. One of them is The Sword of Shannara by Terry Brooks, which, you know, is a very explicit, like, you know, almost... It's an homage to Tolkien almost. And then you have Lord Fowl's Bane by Stephen Donaldson. And I remember when I was a young, aspiring science fiction and fantasy author, people told me that Lord Fowl's Bane was the first book that really showed what epic fantasy was capable of and how it could go beyond and transcend Tolkien's influence. So, Annalie, what's your experience with that book? Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I remember very clearly the first time I was exposed to the book Lord Fowl's Bane, and it was when I was a kid. I had read Lord of the Rings, and I'd read the Narnia books, and I'd read a lot of Ursula Le Guin, like the Wizard of Earthsea. So I kind of had in my head what fantasy was. And then I got into high school, and I joined a group of much older kids, like seniors, who were playing D&D together. And because, you know, we were playing D&D. And the dungeon master said to me, well, if you're going to, you know, play with us and, you know, do our version of D&D, you have to read Lord Fowl's Bane. And that's like kind of going to explain to you like the mood. And the novel starts with a guy who has been, it's a secondary world kind of thing. And there's a guy who's been disabled in our world because he has leprosy. And one of the side effects of his disability is that he's impotent. 
So he comes to this new world and he's sort of born afresh in a new body and he doesn't have leprosy anymore. And the first thing he does is like test drive his dick by raping a woman. And I remember, it's not that I hadn't been exposed to sex and violence before, but it was a very, it was both cruel and offhand. I remember reading it and thinking, wow, like there's just, he just rapes this woman and that's just supposed to be normal and how it goes. And um, I continued to play D&D with this group and I continued to use the female characters that I had always played. And I was very fond of being a female half-elf. And my DM immediately put me into a situation where I was, my character, my female character, was expected to get something from a bureaucrat by having sex with him. And the bureaucrat immediately started saying to my character, like, oh, what are you going to give me for that? You know, are you going to, like, give me a good time? And, like, you know, basically this was a game where the these high schoolers, high school guys, I was the only uh, girl in the group, they had all been exposed to this idea that fantasy should be realistic and gritty and that Lord Fowl's Bane was kind of an example of what it meant to bring realism into fantasy. And I quit the group. I didn't want to play. I was like, fuck that. Like, you know, if my character is going to have to deal with like being harassed and raped, that just wasn't the game I wanted to play. I wanted to have hijinks and, and heists and you know, yeah, I want to, you know, have a sword fight or two, but that was just not my vision of um, of fantasy. So it was very clear to me that there was a strong connection between these guys having read this book and their notion of what fantasy was being really different from what had come before. Yeah. And so, of course, Lord Fowl's Bane is important in one other way, uh, in that Thomas Covenant, the hero, is not just some random dude who stumbles into an epic destiny the way that Frodo in Lord of the Rings arguably is. Instead, Thomas Covenant is the fated savior. He's chosen by prophecy to save the realm from Lord Fowl. The Lord of the Rings books do have Aragorn, who's destined to be king, but their actual protagonist is just some dude whose cousin Bilbo stole a magic ring and it ended up in his possession. Now, I'd argue that a crucial ingredient of a lot of the epic fantasies that follow Lord of the Rings is that they have a chosen one like Thomas Covenant, like in the Wheel of Time, there's the dragon, for example. And you could also argue that even as Lord of the Rings is exerting all this influence on epic fantasy, there's also Dune. Dune is a super influential epic fantasy, even though it's also dressed up as science fiction. And Dune features a messiah, Paul Atreides, who obviously we talked about in our previous episode about how it's complicated, but he is kind of the, the prophesied savior of the Fremen. So, you know, after Lord Fowl's Bane, I feel like the notion of the protagonist being a regular guy who's just caught up in a mess is kind of less popular going forward. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think some of these shifts come about because, you know, Joseph Campbell's uh, idea of the hero's journey becomes mm -hmm. a hugely popular idea in the mid 20th yes. century. Um, and that really shifts a lot of the ways that fantasy writers and and even just sort of literary writers are thinking about how to create a protagonist or what it means to have this kind of story. And 
you know, that's a big shift. And it's also, you know, it ties in really nicely with Christian ideas that, you know, the hero is often chosen by a god. Um, and right. that there's just one guy who's chosen. It's a very monotheistic kind of like there's just the one guy. It's not like there's a chosen group or like different people represent different gods or whatever. So I think that's also really important for Western epics. You know, it kind of fits into the stories that were told in the West through the Bible and other really important early religious epics like that. So I guess this brings me to the point of the episode, which is when we ask who owns epic fantasy or who owns Lord of the Rings, what are we really asking? Yeah, so for me, one of the things that really distinguishes epic fantasy as a genre, beginning with Lord of the Rings, is that there's a honking big giant map at the start of the book. And, you know, obviously there are books with maps at the start that aren't epic fantasy, but it's hard to think of any, like, major epic fantasies that don't have the honking big map. And with any kind of map, the question becomes, what's included on the map, what's not included on the map, and what's centered on the map? And to put it mildly, the maps in these books often tend to be very centered on whatever is the secondary world's version of Western Europe. Even when you get to things like Game of Thrones or the Kushiel's Legacy series, Europe is the center. It's the origin point. It's where our adventures start from. It's often where all of the major adventures take place. Yeah, that is so true. I really think that the map is key to how we understand an epic fantasy and that by reading the map, whether it's an actual physical map at the front of the book, which, as you said, very, very common, um, or just putting the map together based on the adventures that characters are having. And a huge part of epic fantasy has always been the travel log, the adventure visiting another land, um, you know, journeys that take really enormous spans of time. Um, and this goes back really far. I mean, in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, one of my favorite fantasies from the Middle Ages, there's like this section. It's kind of hilarious because the story is really focused in on this one little moment. But there's this one paragraph where the poet is like, and then he went all over the place into all these different lands. And the knight was like traveling around and like trying to find stuff. And like, you know, Gawain like went here and there. And then he gets you know, and, and that only, like I said, it only takes this short time. But the fantasy epic takes that one paragraph of Gowan going here and there and visiting the hills and visiting all this other stuff and just explodes it out till that becomes the entire story. And, mm. you know, it's funny because maps can show us both how a story is unconsciously Eurocentric, like literally putting Europe at the center of the map, but it also can, those maps can be used to kind of tweak that idea and, and re remind us that, in fact, Europe or Western civilization are not always the center of the map. And I was thinking of this in the context of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, which is such an interesting take on the epic fantasy. And it has, in the story, there are two different maps, um, not physical maps, but there's England, where the story is taking place, and partly in France as well. And then there's also the Ways, capital W, which are roads built by the fairies um, that you can reach by going into a mirror. 
And different characters use these ways to get from one place to another in the real world more quickly. It's kind of like almost like a wormhole. But inside that world within the mirror in the world of the ways, there's an entire other map of basically the world, you know, of England or of the fairy version of England that is kind of falling apart and forgotten, but it's still there. And it feels like that's a very conscious attempt on Susanna Clarke's part, the author, to remind us that the map of Europe is just the latest version of a map that is very ancient and that there's roads that go back really far and whole other civilizations that have existed in the same place and had other maps of reality and other ways of getting around. And so, especially because the book is dealing with imperialism, um, it feels like a bit of a nod to the idea that, you know, England thinks of itself as the center of things, thinks of its map as the truth, but actually there's lots of other ways that people can go. So what do you think has happened to epic fantasy in the 21st century? Yeah, so I did some research on this, and it seems like there was this huge boom in epic fantasy in the 1990s with the rise of things like The Wheel of Time and Game of Thrones. And, you know, we had the rise of grimdark fantasy with not only George R. R. Martin, but authors like George Joe Abercrombie. But, you know, I feel like it slowed down maybe a little bit. I'm hard-pressed to think of, like, epic fantasy authors who've achieved blockbuster status since the mid-2000s. That's when you have people like Patrick Rothfuss and Brandon Sanderson coming along. Although I guess Patrick Rothfuss doesn't consider himself an epic fantasy author. And I feel like part of what happened in the last 20 years or so is that fantasy has kind of broadened out beyond that kind of Tolkien model and that kind of, you know, epic fantasy model into a lot of stuff that owes less of a debt to Tolkien. Yeah, I mean, I guess one question is whether epic fantasy has become more inclusive of marginalized voices in the past uh, 20 years or so. I mean, it really felt like when N.K. Jemisin's series that starts with the 100,000 Kingdoms came along, that it was a real breath of fresh air for epic fantasy. And that was around 2010. Yeah, and there definitely have been some more, you know, you've got Ken Liu writing his silk punk novels about the Dandelion dynasty. There's definitely more epic fantasies that kind of center non-European characters, non-European settings. But I feel like what really seems to have happened, first of all, the last few years in particular have seen this huge flowering of anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist fantasies that, you know, I would categorize as being epic fantasy. And we talked about those on our episode last month about decolonizing fantasy when we interviewed Nassim Jamnia, uh, including like C.L. Clark's The Unbroken, R.F. Kuang's Babel, a bunch of other recent books that are really important. But, you know, when I looked into this question, what I found was a bit more surprising. It's more that there have been other types of fantasy that have kind of eaten into the market of epic fantasy including young adult fantasy and urban fantasy and paranormal romance and a bunch of others. So tell me more about that. If you search on the internet, you'll find tons of like hand-wringing essays about like how young adult fantasy is eating into the market for epic fantasy or how urban fantasy and paranormal romance are cannibalizing the market for epic fantasy. And it definitely seems like, huh. especially among younger readers, like other types of fantasies became more popular at a certain point in the 21st century. And, you know, the good news is that both YA fantasy and urban fantasy are including a lot more perspectives that were largely being ignored in the epic fantasy boom. You have like a ton of BIPOC authors and queer authors and like 
younger women authors writing different types of fantasy novels. And I think that what's happened is that these other types of fantasy, including like especially urban fantasy and YA fantasy, have kind of cross-pollinated with Tolkien's legacy and other types of epic fantasy from like the 20th century to create some new types of writing. Um, but at the same time, you still have this kind of backlash going on that, you know, there's always going to be a backlash that we kind of talked about at the start of the episode where there are people who insist epic fantasies that include powerful BIPOC people and women and queers are unrealistic or somehow historically inaccurate. And these are the same people who will be yelling online about Star Wars, including, you know, black characters and more powerful women and superhero comics and so on and so forth. It's all part of that one backlash, I think. Mm -hmm. And like mermaids can't be black and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it makes me think again about what we talked about with Lord Fowl's Bane, because the thing about that book that I think was embraced by, well, these dudes in my D&D group, but also all of the millions of people who bought those books, is the idea that that was somehow realistic, that rape is just a fact of life. And, you know, not including it in a fantasy made that fantasy just like too absurd and too silly. And like that you just couldn't have a representation of a medieval style civilization without just like rape happening all the time. It's just normal. And, you know, the very same people, I think, who are eager to embrace the kind of sexual violence that you see in, say, Game of Thrones or any number of other of the kind of new epic fantasies that do kind of foreground violence and especially sexual violence. These are the same people who say it's unrealistic to have representations of Black people in the Middle Ages, or it's unrealistic to have elves that are Black or dwarves that are Black or, you know, or magicians who are Asian. And the fact is that we know from medieval history that there were a ton of people of color in Europe during the 12th and 13th century and the 14th century, mm -hmm. which are kind of the eras that we call back to in epic fantasy. There were people who traveled from all different parts of the world to hang out in London. Um, there were people from London who traveled to lots of other parts of the world. I, I don't know why I'm picking on London. There's people from Europe who are traveling all over the world. And, you know, there were a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of intermingling, there was a lot of intermarriage, there were mixed race people, and that was just a fact of life. <laughs> and, you know, I think that when we are revisiting epic fantasy and kind of reinventing it, calling for realism is not necessarily it. That's not really um, what's at stake here. I think what's at stake is that People feel like there has been a European ownership over this genre and that they're losing it. And it really doesn't have much to do at all with what's real and what isn't. Yeah. And, you know, it's even pretty recently you find like panels at 
fantasy conventions talking about how epic fantasy is really about Western Europe and that's really the heart of epic fantasy. And it's something that we're still kind of getting away from. And that question of like who gets to be elves and dwarves and stuff is super loaded because obviously those are racialized categories in Tolkien and it's mm-hmm. it all is bound up with race. And in fact, you know, we're going to take a short break and when we come back, we're going to talk to Tolkien scholar Helen Young about this. And I think she's going to be able to shed some more light on this issue. So first of all, thanks for joining us, uh, Dr. Young. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Yeah, awesome. So why is Lord of the Rings in particular such a popular text and so emblematic of like high fantasy or epic fantasy? What what makes it a foundational text? Um, so I think there are a couple of part reasons for this. Um, I mean, one is that when it came out, it was so original. Um, there was really nothing like it. Um, and even though Tolkien was inspired by, you know, previous authors like William Morris, he knew uh, Robert Howard's Conan stories, um, really nobody had created a entire other world um, to set these stories in. And Tolkien did that for most of his life he was working on it. Um, so it was rich and varied and complicated. And so there's a lot in there for people to like. And so it was kind of taken up in the decades after it was published originally by publishers. It became a a kind of massive hit um, in the 60s and early 70s and partly inspired people who had read it to to want to write similar things, but also publishers to want to publish them. Um, So part of its kind of significance now is not just because of the, the books that Tolkien himself wrote and published during his lifetime, but all the things that were inspired by it. So, you know, heaps of other fantasy stories, arguably the whole fantasy genre, and also, you know, films, video games, all the other stuff, fan fiction, um, that, that's been kind of inspired by it. So there's uh, a snowball effect, I guess. Yeah, so, I mean, just kind of jumping into, like, the, the controversy that we've been kind of talking about, and I know that you've been talking about, there's been this kind of online backlash about having black and brown characters, you know, who are elves or or dwarves in the new Lord of the Rings show. Is this basically the same thing as what's happened with Star Wars? Is there anything that's different about it because it's Lord of the Rings? Um, I think it is pretty similar to what's happened with Star Wars. But, you know, Lord of the Rings has been taken up by racist extremists for at least 20 years. Um, So I first stumbled across this around about the time Peter Jackson's movies came out, um, where extremist websites, one in particular, started a whole chat forum based around these films to try and get people into um, their way of thinking, right? So um, these, these kind of voices have been working their way into Tolkien fandom for decades. Um, And I don't know if the same kind of purposeful things have been happening in Star Wars. That's a really good point. I don't, I can't really, I've never heard of like white nationalists, especially 20 years ago, like when George Lucas was putting out the prequel films, I didn't hear about, you know, white supremacists saying, you know, the Jedi are really us or, or, you know, it's, I think it's, that is an interesting difference. So another thing that's sort of, you know, drawing a parallel between the Lord of the Rings controversy and other controversies, because I think that's interesting to think about. You've drawn some some ire from some fans because you've talked about how Tolkien made certain of the 
groups in his books, uh, like the orcs and the, you know, and the dwarves stand in for racial groups on earth. And there's been a similar discussion happening with Dungeons and Dragons, which has orcs and drow elves who are stand-ins for people of color. Why is this such a common sort of racist trope across Dungeons, Dragons, Lord of the Rings, other fantasy things? And why is it so hard for people to kind of face up to what's obviously a huge problem? Okay, so Dungeons and Dragons um, drew a lot of their inspiration, and this is pretty well known, directly from Tolkien's world. So the, the kind of racial stereotypes and the racial structures that, that Tolkien built into Middle-earth um, really come out of 19th century kind of pseudoscience of race. When Dungeons and Dragons started, and I've, I've actually got a, a chapter I've written about this with a colleague uh, coming out probably next year, um, when it started, it was basically people who were playing um, military role-playing games, layering fantasy over the top of that. Um, and so what they imported yeah. was the, the, the kind of structures of race that were there and available to them in Tolkien's world. Um, and so what you ended up with in that game is, you know, different species slash races, as they called them, that were, um, you know, essentially different. Um, some of them were better than others. Some of them were, you know, inherently morally evil. Um, all these things that really worked with a game where you've got to have rules and numbers and, and ways of figuring out how the world works in really kind of clear, defined categories that, that don't actually work in, don't exist in real life. And I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, there's been a lot of, because Tolkien and Dungeons and Dragons um, kind of inspired and influenced so many other people that those kind of ideas of race and that just kind of way of building a world is just, just, it's just kind of conventional in fantasy. And so people don't think necessarily think about it clearly. They don't even necessarily consider, oh, hey, that's racist, but I'm going to put it in my world as well. In terms of why it's so difficult for people to, to hear, and for some folks it is, not for everybody, you know, um, for some people it's like, oh, oh, that's what I was uncomfortable about. <laughs> um, but in the kind of society that we live in, most people don't want to hear either that they're racist or that something they like is racist. And particularly in fandom where, you know, a lot of people's identity is, is kind of bound up in the things that they love. Mm -hmm. If you say to somebody, this thing that you really love is actually quite racist, they don't want to hear it because it's saying yeah. to them well, you love a thing that's racist, maybe you're racist. And, you know, I don't think that, you know, that it's, that it's not okay to like problematic things. I think we've been having that conversation in fandom for a really long time. Oh but my there gosh, are ways yes. of doing it that aren't just basically putting in your, your fingers in your ears and saying, no, no, you notice the racism, it's you that's racist. Right, and obviously we all love things that are problematic and it's hard to find... You know, anything, especially anything from the 20th century or earlier that doesn't have some problematic elements, um, you know, you know, you just have to acknowledge that these these issues exist and that, you know, all we can do is try to make them better. But also we can celebrate the non-problematic aspects while criticizing the problematic aspects. So, I mean, in Dungeons and Dragons, when they face this issue, one of the things that they've done, I think, is to say that the drow elves 
are not all evil. So there are some nice drow elves and there are some bad drow elves. Is that really the only way to deal with this? Like if you have like the idea that certain species or certain peoples, like every single person you meet from that, that species or that nationality is going to be evil, there's no way that that's not problematic, right? There's no way to do that trope without it becoming, even if you don't map it onto racial categories on earth. Um, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's problematic in the sense that it's kind of saying, okay, the, we're just going to say that stereotypes are real. Um, in this fantasy world that we've made up where we can do anything we can think of, no, stereotypes, they're real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, even if they're not mapped on to racial categories, I think there's still, you know, some, th- some things you'd want to think about really carefully there to, to kind of not be reductive and shallow and, you know, morally and ethically questionable, but also to not have a world that is um, a little bit dull when you get down to it. Yeah. I mean, that is the thing is it's a little bit dull after a while when everybody from a particular group is the same. It's just sort of not as interesting. So I've seen you quoting Dimitra Fimi. I hope I'm pronouncing their name correctly, talking about this sort of essential contradiction in Tolkien, which is that on the one hand, his books are about, you know, kind of multiculturalism. They're about people joining together from different cultures to fight a common enemy. And Tolkien in real life was very anti-fascist. But at the same time, he still perpetuates racist stereotypes in his work. And, you know, how, how, does that, how do you square that contradiction? And also, is this a contradiction that because so much of epic fantasy borrowed from Tolkien, it's just embedded in fantasy as a genre overall? I mean, how to square that contradiction? I guess my approach is to say, well, Tolkien, like all of us, is, is complex. And in his statements where he's, yeah, he's quite clearly anti-Nazi and he also says at one point in one of his letters that he's anti-apartheid. So what you can say Tolkien is, is anti-extremist. Um, and there's there's a lot of, you know, I think we probably all know a lot of people who are like, yeah, Nazis are bad, but also struggle to recognise any kind of racism that is not Nazism. Um, so right. who can kind of recognise, well, that's extremism, that's really bad, but who perhaps don't recognise the kinds of things that maybe um, we might be talking about with structural racism, systematic racism. Oh, mm-hmm. well, you know, that's just, you know, that's just a slur. It doesn't really matter, those kinds of things. Um, and my, you know, I never met Tolkien, um, but my kind of sense that you get to me from his writings is that perhaps that's the kind of person that Tolkien was, that he could recognise those really extreme terrible things as terrible, but also didn't necessarily recognise other forms of prejudice, bigotry that, that were not so obviously violent. And right. also, you know, that, that kind of community of different cultures that he brings together, um, and I've, I've, I've kind of written about this, is elves, dwarves, all the humans that he brings together in the Fellowship of the Ring, in the Last Alliance, all those kind of places where different beings get together and fight evil, they're all modelled on European people and culture. Um, He really has a a line around who can be good and occasionally it gets a little bit bit fuzzy at the edges, but not really. So he had a concept of who you could be friends with and who you could be allies with. And mostly that was white people. So that, that kind of contradiction 
makes a little bit more sense when you think about how limited that that potential community um, is for him, or at least in his world. Yeah, and actually backing up slightly, I probably should have asked you at this at the start, but what made you decide to study Tolkien? What made you want to kind of devote so much time to him? Okay, well, I, I you know, my dad read me The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings before I could read, so it, it's always been part of my life. Um, and I did my PhD in medieval studies, and when I finished that, which was when uh, the global financial crisis hit, there were no jobs for medieval studies people in Australia, not one. Um, and so I was like, okay, I've got to, I've got to reinvent myself to, and my expertise. Where could I kind of take this? And I did a lot of work in some different fields for a few years, and then um, I was lucky enough to get a, a three-year fellowship for a project on fantasy and race. And I had thought for that project, I'm not going to talk about Tolkien. People have done that already, but then you can't. You can't actually talk about and research race in fantasy without dealing with Tolkien. So I kind of a little bit accidentally became a a Tolkien scholar and my work now, you know, people want to talk to me about Tolkien because people want to talk about Tolkien, Um, but it's not, you know, I'm not just a Tolkien scholar. Right. Yeah, so actually talking about medieval studies, for the past several years, uh, folks like uh, Dorothy Kim and Medieval POC have been getting a lot of pushback for kind of resisting this sort of white nationalist view of the Middle Ages that really was invented in the 18th and 19th centuries. It's not actually based on real scholarship of the Middle Ages. And I guess what I'm wondering is, given that so much epic fantasy literature does take place in sort of a mythical, imaginary version of medieval Europe, how does this skewed history feed into the fantasy stories? Look, it it absolutely does. Um, and part of that is via kind of Tolkien and, and being inspired by what Tolkien wrote and, you know, a lot of his scholarship was really coming out of kind of late 19th century stuff. But then there are also people writing in fantasy and writing medievalist fantasy that have kind of said, okay, no, that's not what we're doing. So uh, I actually have a, a recent book out that I wrote with a, with a colleague, uh, Kavita Moodan Finn, on um, global medievalism where we look at the kinds of medievalism that people like... Um, uh, Samantha Shannon in Prior of the Orange Tree, um, S.A. Chakraborty. Um, I've just gone completely blank <laughs> about the other people that we write about. Um, but, you know, there are people, oh, Tracy Dion's um, Blood March came out yesterday. I know, um, I'm but so excited. People, right? That go, they're going to my evenings for the rest of the week. But people are starting to... Um, say, okay, this is not the limit of what the Middle Ages were. And there are moves, you know, you mentioned Dorothy Kim, um, she and, and, and others are doing really significant work in medieval studies to, to kind of say, okay, for so long we've had this idea in our culture that um, the Middle Ages just happened in Europe and it was all white people and they were really just like cut off from the rest of the world. And that is just so very much not true. And we're starting to see in the scholarship, but also, you know, in popular culture, people looking at it in other ways and, and writing other stories. And those are the ones that I think are more interesting and that I would really love to see made into, like, TV shows and films and stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's so much scope there to do something really interesting. 
Yeah, and so, you know, you mentioned Tracy Dion and, like, you know, Samantha Shannon and some other authors who are... I've read a lot of really amazing books lately, like fantasy books that sort of decenter Europe, either in the present or in, you know, a mythic past or in a secondary world that's sort of a vaguely medieval secondary world. Europe is decentered. And that's, you know, decentering Europe, focusing on other settings is certainly one way to counteract this kind of uh, systemic bias that we've been talking about and this kind of mythologized European Middle Ages that we've been talking about. Is it possible to feature Europe, like medieval Europe in a fantasy narrative without kind of making it a white nationalist playground? Is it possible to have a more accurate or more nuanced perspective on on medieval Europe in a fantasy story? Yeah, look, there are definitely ways to do that. I mean, the the, the kind of white nationalist playground is... um, partly to do with race, but they're also, you know, really, really wound up about um, trans people, queer people, um, you know, what are, um, what kind of roles women should fill. Um, and that's one of the other things that we increasingly recognise in the scholarship, that, yeah, there were absolutely trans people in the Middle Ages. There were absolutely queer people in the Middle Ages. Um, and they were not universally, you know, thrown out of society, persecuted by the church or you know, those things happen, but there are also people who just kind of live their lives. And that's one of the things that really prevents white nationalists from, you know, if, if you put queer people into your books, if you put people of colour into your books or your films or whatever it is, um, those are things that kind of really prevent white nationalists from getting in there and being like, yes, this is my fantasy world. Um, so I, I saw this on a... Um, to do with the Dragon Age franchise... Those video games, like, there were some white nationalists who were really into the original one. Um, And then as the franchise progressed and you started having NPCs that would at least kind of semi-initiate potentially queer relationships with the player characters, they were like, oh, no, this is is not for us. We're not playing these anymore. Right? So you you can make those kind of choices. And even if being historically accurate is something that's really important to you, you can still make those choices. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, So final question, actually. Given that it seems like the same battles are happening in academic medieval studies and in, like, fantasy fandom, can we have, like, alliances between medievalists and, like, fantasy, you know, writers and readers? Can we, like, work together to kind of root the white supremacy out of, you know, both fictional and nonfictional accounts? Yeah, look, I, I, I literally dream of that. Um, I'm, I'm writing a fellowship application now that's trying to get some money to be able to, like, do some of this work. I, I think, you know, there are connections between fandom and academia, particularly around medieval studies, um, although not exclusively, but also what's happening in these fields, kind of reflections of what's happening in the, in the wider world, right? Um, these aren't conversations and battles that are exclusive to fandom or exclusive to medieval studies. So, yeah, I think these, uh, you know, fandom, academia, everywhere is a, I guess, a cultural battleground where, yeah, we absolutely need to work together to say this is not the kind of world that we want to live in. You don't get to own fandom. You don't get to own Tolkien if you're a white nationalist. You don't get to own academia um, these are not your spaces. We're not going to turn it into a Nazi bar. Um, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful place to end this, uh, to leave it off. Thank you so much. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I am uh, on Twitter, 
I'm at Hey You Online. I'm still on Twitter. I don't know how long that will last. <laughs> Look, if you Google Helen Young and Medieval, I, I actually turn up. Um, but I'm at I'm at Deakin University as my institution, um, and that will probably help you differentiate me from all the other Helen Youngs out there. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and I hope we can chat again soon. So our epic heroic journey is completed. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. If you've just stumbled upon this podcast somehow, you can find us in all the places that podcasts are found. If you like us, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you can put a review. You can find us on Twitter at OOACpod. And if you want to go deeper into our world and like become a citizen of the realm of OOACpod, you can support us on Patreon. And that lets you into our Discord where we're just hanging out like making new maps of new fantasy realms all the time. Uh, We're super grateful to our heroic, inspiring, like wizardly producer, Veronica Simonetti, and also super grateful to Chris Palmer for doing our music. And so, you know, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode, but if you're on Patreon, you'll get a mini episode next week, and we'll see you on Discord. Bye! Bye!